Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Merry Christmas. My name is Rob and I get to serve as the pastor here at Eastern Hills. And before we get started today, I want to say thank you for your generosity. The month of December, we have a giving goal of $219,000. And every dollar that comes above and beyond that giving goal is split six ways amongst our local partners. And so far, you've given $114,000 of the $219,000 giving goal. So thank you for your generosity. Just two weeks in, we're so grateful for all of those that are stepping up in faith. So we just want to say thank you. We're grateful. Now here's a question that I've been thinking about this week. How do you know what you think you know about Christmas? The reality is that whatever you believe to be true about the story of Christmas and the birth of Christ, what you believe to be true about Christmas is shaped by someone or some thing. And there are those that might be tuning in today that would say, you know what, what's different about the Christmas story really from the story of Santa Claus? And what I would say is that last week, go back and watch it, though I've provided some tools that historians use to help us see that Christmas is an historical account. But today, what I want to choose to do is zero in and focus in on something else that people believe to be true about Christmas. And this is a growing trend, and more and more people are declaring this with fervor and passion, and it's this, that Christmas is offensive. Last week I shared that, you know, a few years ago, Starbucks started removing the word Christmas from their coffee cups. So you don't say Merry Christmas, they say Merry Coffee. And recently, our family discovered that Google has taken steps in that direction as well. I came home from work and my wife said, you're not going to believe what Google told our oldest daughter, Rose. And I was thinking, oh boy. <laughs> and, and she said, you know, Rose was asking our Google home, you know, hey Google, how do you say um, Merry Christmas in this part of the world? And Google's response was, well, in certain parts of the world, uh, Christmas is offensive. So it's better to say happy holidays. And so I came home, my wife told me the story. She was all fired up. And to be honest, I was a little relieved because when she said, you're not going to believe what Google told our daughter, I was thinking, man, did, did Google share something about the birds and bees Prematurely, I was a little relieved. But the idea of canceling Christmas comes out of cancel, the cancel culture that is permeating Western thinking. And it's, it's, not, it's not that it comes from the West. It actually originates from the East and in, in the Middle East and in parts of, of the world. People subscribe to the value that honor is more important than truth. And that if you're going to say something that while entirely true might bring shame or embarrassment, that you should avoid doing so because they value honor over truth. You don't want to bring shame. And so it's better to not tell the truth because it's more honorable to that person or that group. And some of that thinking is now permeating into Western thinking. I mean, if, if what you what is, whatever your truth is or whatever is you, you believe to be true is part of the majority, then you're good. But if you're in the minority, you should, you know, keep it to yourself because you don't want to bring shame upon somebody else. And so when it comes to Christmas, more and more people are saying that Christmas is offensive. And so some companies and some businesses and some organizations for quite some time now have been taking steps to cancel 
Christmas. But as we said last week, Christmas cannot be canceled because Christmas cannot be canceled. Now, you might be surprised to hear, hear me say this, but when it comes to what people are saying about the message of Christmas and that it's offensive, here's the thing. I agree. I agree with this statement. I believe that Christmas is offensive. And if you're a follower of Christ, then you should believe that Christmas is offensive. But as I say this, there might be an inner tension within you thinking, wait a minute, Christmas is about peace, love, and joy, the savor of the world. I'm not sure. I'm not following. I'm not tracking. And here's why. For many people, Christmas is a remembrance. Christmas is all about traditions and your favorite Christmas film, your favorite Christmas music, you know, your favorite Christmas meals, the favorite Christmas activities, the favorite feelings that come around Christmas and the aroma and the magical moments and even, you know, telling the traditional Christmas story and the birth of Jesus and, and coming to Christmas and having a candlelight service. Christmas is all about remembrance. But today, John is going to help us see that Christmas is a remembrance of deliverance. You see, here's what's true about Christmas. Christmas reminds us that there are problems that we cannot solve. I mean, 2020 has certainly helped us see that. And maybe, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, you're, you're confident in that, hey, you know, the vaccines are right around the corner and, and things are going to get better. And, and maybe some, somehow the, the politician that you voted for for president is now, you know, the, uh, either the president or, or the next president of the United States. And so you've got high hopes and maybe you even survived the, the murder hornets of 2020 and, and things are on the up and up. Even if everything seems to be moving in the right direction, we'd have to agree that 2020 has proven to us that there are many problems in life that we cannot solve. But there's an uncomfortable truth that comes with the message of Christmas, the story of Christmas. And that uncomfortable truth is that one of the biggest problems that we face is ourselves. That the biggest problem often in our life is that person that's staring right back at the, in the mirror at us. And so if God were to send us a Christmas card, here's what it might say. That Christmas card might say, what you need, you can't provide on your own. Not only are you not the answer to your biggest problems, you are the cause of the problems. I love you and I want to help. Merry Christmas, God. At this point, you might be thinking, somebody needs to get this guy some Christmas cookies, maybe one of those Buddy the Elf Christmas grams. I mean, wow, where's the Christmas joy this, this morning? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, here's the deal. I hear you. I recognize that. But for us to understand a true and proper response to Christmas, we have to understand first that the story of Christmas is offensive and that Christmas is more than just remembrance. Christmas is a remembrance of our deliverance. Christmas is the message that God came to earth to solve a problem that we could not solve on our own. And so when it comes to John's Christmas story, he moves beyond the what of Christmas and into the why of Christmas. 
Christmas. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from God and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So when it comes to the what of Christmas, the magi and the census and the angels and the virgin birth, all of that is important. But John takes us to the why of Christmas. Why God had to come as the light of the world through his son, Christ. John gets after life's big question, who's in charge? Who loves me? Is this real? And, and what happens if? If you're tuning in today and, and you don't consider yourself a, a Christian, we're glad that you're watching, but you got to be honest. Those are questions that you have. Who, who's in charge? Who is the, the authority? Who do I submit to? And who loves me? Uh, is this real? Can I buy into this? And if I make decision, if I make this decision, what happens if? And these are the type of questions, questions that John's Christmas story chooses to answer. When he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, what he's referencing is that, you know, the story of Christmas is the birth of Christ, but it's not the beginning of Christ. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him, Jesus. Through Jesus, all things were made. And without him, without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. So Christmas story is about the birth of Christ, but it's not the beginning of Christ. Now, John is speaking to an audience, uh, a Greek audience. And what the Greeks observed is that there was this balance of, uh, amongst of nature, this balance of, of harmony that existed. And what they believed is that that balance took place through a supernatural, uh, impersonable, unknowable force called the Lagos. And uh, in order to be aligned with the universe, you had to align yourself with the Lagos. And, and what they meant by that word was that it was the instruction for the universe and for humanity. It was an instruction manual. And so what John's saying is that that instruction manual is the word of God. And that that word of God has become a person in the person of Christ. And so if you're on the fence when it comes to the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you have a hard time when it comes to the word of God that we call the Bible, here's what I want you to know. Hear this, that you might not believe the word of God, but the word of God believes in you. 
And you might not understand the word of God, but the word of God understands you. You see, here's what John's saying, that the word of God, the logos, the the thing that makes the universe exist, became a person. And John, for that was a person that he saw, that he heard, that that he physically touched. And that this person provided a message. And this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So one question for us to consider is how is the world dark? And, and you could probably list off a lot of answers, but I'm going to sum up the question, uh, the answer to this question in three words. The first word would be evil. And when we think about this word evil, you might think about horror movies that come to mind. But the essence of this word is that morally we are going in the wrong direction. And not only are we moving in a direction that's counter to God's design, we all know what it's like for us to go against God's direction in our life and to suffer the consequences of our poor choices and our choices working against us. And so we've experienced the reality of evil and the absence of good and our understanding of that is what contributes to the darkness that we experience in the world. The second would be ignorance. How many times have we said something like, I never thought it would turn out this way, or I never thought that this would lead to that taking place. And if I had known, I never would have done that, or I never would have moved in that direction. On our own, we don't have the necessary insight to connect all of the dots and all of the implications of our moral decisions. And when, we try, when we're trying to decide, is this right? Is this wrong? But we have certainly experienced the consequences of us choosing what's wrong over what's right. And the third would be insensitivity. That there is something in us that instinctively rejects God's moral authority in our lives. And that there's a, a compass in us that moves us in this direction of what we know is right and what we know is wrong. And yet... We can't but resist to go in the opposite direction of that compass. And we also can't ignore the fact that that's what helps us make sense of so much of the darkness that we experience in life. That our gravitational pull is to move in the opposite direction of what God wants for us. And any sentiment of canceling Christmas is to say that the purpose of Christmas is only remembrance and that we don't need deliverance. That there's not just some problem that we can't solve on our own. That there's no need to solve the problem that we naturally drift in the opposite direction of what God wants for us in our life and what's best for us in our life. And so John says it this way, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So what John's saying is that when it comes to Christmas, if Christmas is just about the peace and the love and the light and the joy and the hope, if Christmas is just about the hope and we don't embrace the hurt of Christmas, then we're making Jesus out to be a liar. That he didn't come to be the light of the world. That he didn't need to come to solve the problem that we could not solve on our own. And last week, what I said about that statement in the light of the world is that Jesus arrived during the festival of the tabernacles and it was a strategic time 
where all of Jerusalem was lit up through the lighting of the menorahs around the temple. Even uh, historians like Josephus tell us about the significance of this time of year. And it's that time of year that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But do you know what happened shortly before Jesus made this statement? Do you know what happened? Well, it's found in John's gospel chapter 8. Verse 2 says, At the dawn, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to preach them, uh, preach to them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And so the fact that it's dawn, I mean, this is like Black Friday shoppers. I mean, they can't wait for the doors to open and bust through. I mean, it's mob mentality. They've been waiting. And it says here that they made her stand before the group. So this woman is not there of her own will, that they're forcing her to do something that she does not want to do. And they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And you can envision them with the stone in their hand, just this the anger and just this righteousness. Like, what are you going to do about this? And they were using this question as a trap in order as a basis for accusing him, accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And what's interesting is mob mentality and religion happened then, and it still happens today, that even today in the church, that when people feel like they're so right and they just, they get their, their rocks together and they grab their people together and they're so ready to pounce and it breaks God's heart then and it breaks God's heart today because we quickly forget that we all sin. We all fall short of the glory and we need to be mindful of that first when we're engaging in difficult things before we're going to call someone out for what we think is sin in their life. We got to stop back and say, well, what about the sin in my own life? And Jesus points out and says, let any one of you who was without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote down on the ground. And at this who heard began to go away one at a time. Now, I don't know. I don't know what he wrote in the sand. Maybe it was the Macaulay Culkin, you know, home alone version of I must protect this house. I mean, he's outside of the temple, the house of God. But whatever he wrote, the older ones went away first. They looked at their resume of sin in their life and said, guilty, I'm out. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this all took place in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I encourage you to go back and look this week. But for John, this was not just some tall tale or legend. This was just one of the many accounts in which Jesus helped his followers understand about their sin and their need for forgiveness. This was just one of the many accounts that would have come to mind as John penned these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, for John, the story of Christmas was so much more than just remembering about the birth of Christ. Christmas was a remembrance of our need to be delivered from our sin. 
John says, in light of that, knowing that the light has come into the world, in light of that, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, it's this time of year where many churches practice the tradition of Advent. Now, in some places in the world, like in Scandinavia, Lutheran churches will light a candle on the first day of December for 24 days leading up to the 24th of Christmas. But the most common practice, uh, especially in here, even in central New York, is to light one candle each Sunday leading up to Christmas. And there's different colorations and there's different symbolism involved with uh, the Advent wreath. So the first candle here, you know, symbolically uh, represents the prophet's candle and the message of hope. And we read about the message of hope from the prophet Isaiah and the, and the coming arrival of the Messiah. And it's purple because it symbolically represents royalty, repentance, and fasting. Now, the second candle here is known as Bethlehem's candle, and it represents uh, the message of faith. And that the last book of the Bible, or last book of the Old Testament, the book of Micah, prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And that in John's gospel, we would see that Jesus shows up and he says, I am the bread of life. And that the place of Bethlehem is the town of bread, the house of bread. And so this is significant. And the symbolism here with the purple candle represents the preparation of the coming king. Now, the third candle here is the rose-colored pink candle. And this symbolizes a shepherd's great joy at the proclamation of the angel that Jesus has come for the humble, even the unimportant people of society like the shepherds. And so the pink color represents the joyfulness and rejoicing. And then this fourth candle here is known as the angel's candle, and it helps us remember peace. The angels announced that Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring people close to God and one another once again. And the purple represents the culmination of love, the love of Christ through the Messiah. But in some places, they choose to represent uh, through a fifth candle. Not represent, but to remember through a fifth candle. And this fifth candle is to remember the light of Christ. And not just any light, but a pure light, a light that was of no sin and no darkness and no brokenness that was not tainted by the evil of this world. And this light is represented as white, a pure light, and represented for the pure light that is victorious through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so I got to believe that if John were here today, he would be lighting the fifth candle every Christmas. Because John said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But to really understand why I think he would have lit this fifth candle and why he penned these words, I want us to go back in time to 66 A.D. And sometimes it helps us to understand perspective because pain does something to an individual. Pain shapes your perspective. When you understand what someone went through, it it helps you understand their writings. And in 66 A.D., Jesseus Flores was a guy that loved money and hated Jesus. And his job was to collect tax revenue. 
And whenever funds would go low, he would go into the honeypot that was the temple and he would raid the temple for silver because that's where the Jews would bring their temple offerings. And the Jews had had enough and enough already. This has happened one many times, so they push back. And Jesseus brings in the troops, and 3,600 Jews are massacred. And this leads to the first Jewish revolt. And they successfully hold off the Roman armies. They devise a plan, and their revolt against the Roman army, and they are successful. And so what you know to be true about the Romans is they don't like to lose. And so the next time that they show up, they show up with the big guns and they show up with a new war weapon. And so in AD 70, General Titus shows up outside of the northern wall during Passover. And this was the time of year where 600 Jews, 600,000 Jews would be uh, reflecting and remembering. And this is the same location that I talked about last week where the temple would be lit up for, for all of Jerusalem to see. It's the same location. It's a special location. And the, the Romans knew what they were doing. They knew that so many Jews would be gathered for the remembrance of Passover. And so General Titus rolls up with his new war weapon. And if you like the Die Hard as a, uh, the movie Die Hard as a Christmas story, then you're going to like this part of this Christmas story. And so they, they roll up with this war weapon that would throw stones at the wall and they had barricades. And, and so for a seven month period, they would go after the wall and go after the wall and the Jews would repair it and try to, to protect themselves until the wall fell. And the Roman army goes in and they burn the temple to the ground and they spread the stones throughout the city. Scholars would tell us that a million Jews would be killed and over 100,000 of them would be put into captivity. The only way that I could describe the emotion and pain and devastation that they would have felt if you were a Jew during that time is to go back to how we all felt when the Twin Towers fell on 9-11. In fact, it could be argued that uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find an event that compares to the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of Judaism as it was practiced since Moses. Today, they still haven't restored the temple. If you were to go there today, you would find an Islamic mosque that occupies the land where the temple once stood. But this would not have surprised John. John would not have been surprised by the temple falling. And some people believe he would have been in the temple. And if he wasn't, he definitely would have known about the temple falling. It would not have surprised him though, because Jesus predicted these things. You see all of these pointing to the temple. You see all of these stones. Do you not truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And we don't just know this through Matthew. Luke said in his gospel as well, that Jesus made a point to say, as for these things that you see, speaking to to the temple. The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. But despite that, despite seeing that this, the source of life, the beacon of hope, the temple in Jerusalem coming to ruin, John knew that this could not put out the light that had come into darkness. Many powers had tried, uh, Caesar and uh, Tiberius and Nero tried, and, and even John's friends who followed after Jesus, who were beaten and tortured and imprisoned and crucified and burnt to death. Some Christians even fed to wild animals. Despite what people tried to do to abolish the cause of Christianity, they could not extinguish the light of 
the world. I mean, nothing could overcome it. You see, what John understood about the destruction of temple and, and the arrival of Christ was this, that no longer would God's people have to go to the temple to remember the light, uh, the God who is light. No, because when we become Christ followers, God then dwells within us. And where we go, so goes the light of the world. And this is why John says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That Christmas is more than just a remembrance. Christmas is a remembrance of a deliverance. And if this is true, John has some simple instructions for those who follow Christ. He says, walk in the light as he is in the light. And where did he get these instructions? These simple instructions? Jesus Jesus once said to his followers, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way that people once went to the temple to remember the light of the world, the, the God of light, now people would look to God's people and wherever they go as a reflection of the light of the world. And so Jesus is saying, you now are the light of the world. And John knew this because he did life with Jesus. Jesus says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. See, most of us wouldn't really understand the significance of what Jesus was saying here because his audience, they didn't grow up in a time where electricity was so prevalent. <laughs> electricity didn't exist. Today we walk into a room, hit a light switch, and boom, there's light that fills the room. But for them, during that time, Jesus' audience, if they were going to bring light into the room, they would light an oil lamp. And of course, they would put it on display for as many people as possible to see that light. And so the idea of putting a clay pot over the light would have been humorous to Jesus' audience. But Jesus is making a point. He's saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the behavior of his followers should be done in such a way that we should live our lives in such a way and praise God and worship God in such a way that in those, uh, that posture of how we worship the God of the universe, that other people are drawn to the light of the world. That our love for the light of the world and how we love God and love others so draws other people into our lives. And that God has appointed his church to be marked as a community and to be known for their love for one another. And as they reflect the light of the world, Jesus said, people are gonna know that you follow me based on your love for one another. They're gonna be drawn to the one who is the light of the world. And that's why John provided some simple instructions. He says to walk in the light as he is in the light. You see, Christmas is a remembrance of our deliverance. It's a remembrance that God came to deliver us from the problem that we could not solve on our own. And if this is true, our response is to walk in the light as he is in the light. Take a look at this picture here. You see, for the past 50 years, our church has been known in the community as that city on the hill, a reflection of God's light for humanity. 
And for the past 50 years, we've gathered and we've celebrated many Christmas Eves. And we've invited the community to come in and celebrate and to worship with us that they were drawn to our love for the light of the world. And we would invite people and we would serve people. And so more than that, Beyond Christmas, our church has been known in the community as a reflection of God's light into this world and how we serve those in need and as we show up in hard places. And so this Christmas, I'm asking, to do, asking us to do what we've always done. And I'm asking us to continue to do what we've always done in 2021. That this Christmas, we would invite people to join us. I'm going to invite you to take this next step. Invite someone to join you on site or online. And that if you aren't able to gather physically in person, you might ask them to join you in a watch party through Facebook. Or if you're able to join us on site, that you would invite a friend, a family member, or a neighbor to come and be a part of a service where we remember the light of the world through candlelight. And this Christmas, I'm inviting you to consider serving as a host on-site or online Christmas Eve. You might email us at office at easternhills.org this week and say, hey, I would love to be a host in our online chat and engage with people on Christmas Eve. Or I would love to, to help people find their seats on Christmas Eve. And this Christmas, I'm inviting you to consider this next step to maybe give to the mission of God's church and help us shine the light of Christ in central New York. That as you take this step of generosity, you help us continue to not just shine the light of the world this time of year, Christmas, but all year long. That our church would continue to be seen as a city on a hill, that people would be drawn to our love of Christ and our love of others because of Christ's love for us. That we would give to the mission of God's church and help us shine the light of the Christ in central New York. And then lastly, this Christmas, I'm inviting you to consider this step to share the light of the world with those you love most in the world. Share the light of the world with those you love most in the world. It's this time of year where we have an easy invitation to share and, and talk about the hope that we have in Christ. And that as we invite people to join us on Christmas Eve, and that as we step in and serve where we can serve and to give what we can give and to share the love that we have, that we will continue to be that church that is known in our community for, for reflecting the light of Christ. But I would challenge you with this. Who is that one person that you can pray for this Christmas? that finds himself in a, in a place of darkness and hurt and despair. And how might you do more than just remember the light of the world, but that you would share the light of the world and their darkness? How can you show up in that hard season for that one person that is coming to mind? And I bet that if you follow God in this way, you're gonna remember the true message of Christmas, that Christmas is a remembrance of deliverance. Christmas is the message that God has chosen to solve the problem that we could not solve on our own. And he's chosen to solve that problem through his son and his people. Think about that. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for your truth. And I'm grateful for the reminder that we are first and foremost sinners that are so far uh, from you. And yet, despite the fact that we move in the opposite direction, you still pursue us. And that Christmas is that reminder that you love us so much that you entered into a world of brokenness and hurt and destruction. And you did it to serve us. And now we have the freedom to choose you and to to call on your name. And when we do that, that's not the end. That you invite us to shine our light, your light, into the world around us. And so, Father, I pray that you would send many people through our doors this Christmas and to join us online, and that as we declare the good news of your Son come to earth, that you would open up people's hearts and they would take that next step and to trust in you with their entire being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for those that have already taken that next step, Father, would you put it on our heart to figure out who is that person this Christmas in which we might shine a light in their darkness, that this Christmas, more than just remember the light of the world, we would share the light of the world. We pray these things in the power of your Son, Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the ministry of Eastern Hills, click the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.